Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 10th of November. Today, the world's oil reserves are in much shorter supply than official figures show, according to whistleblowers at the International Energy Agency. If the figures are overestimating how much oil there is, then it clearly encouraged people to be slower in terms of the move to a low-carbon economy than they should really be doing. The Daily Mail doesn't like it, but fans have been getting very excited about Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. It does blow you away, and already I'm in love with it. And columnist Charlie Brooker on the hell of writing for The Guardian. I'm always surprised when people sort of say to me, oh, you seem to say what I think. Because when I'm doing things, I feel a real struggle to get things out. I'm like, it's like having a massive stammer or something. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, the news headlines. President Barack Obama and his wife Michelle will lead a memorial service today for the 13 people killed at the Fort Hood Army base in Texas. The Army psychiatrist Major Nidal Hassan went on the rampage killing 12 soldiers and one civilian and is recovering in hospital but refused to talk to police. US intelligence agencies report they've discovered he'd made contact with an anti-American Muslim cleric in Yemen last year. Here in Britain, shoplifting has risen to record levels. The Centre for Retail Research says the value of goods stolen in the past year rose by 20% to nearly £5 billion, the highest in Europe. The researchers believe there's been an increase in middle-class shoplifters trying to keep up their standard of living. Conservative leader David Cameron's laying out his plans to tackle poverty today. He promises to reduce unemployment and to eradicate child poverty. He's also aiming to let those getting back into work keep more of their unemployment benefits. Foreign Secretary David Miliband has ruled himself out of the running for the new role of European Foreign Minister. He's told Danish and German socialist colleagues that he's not interested in the role. Miliband has been to Berlin to celebrate the anniversary of the fall of the wall. The government has no idea how many people are dying in hospital from superbugs, according to MPs on the Public Accounts Committee. The chairman, Edward Lee, says the NHS has successfully reduced the number of victims of MRSA and C. diff, but has not tackled other bugs that cause 80% of the deaths, particularly after surgery. The photograph of the same scene in Berlin gets on to four newspaper front pages this morning is of Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel, flanked by former Russian leader Mikhail Gorbachev and Poland's Lech Walesa. The Class of 89, our paper calls them. The Times gives them the title of the Architects of Freedom. The Sun continues its campaign against Gordon Brown on behalf of the mother of a soldier killed in Afghanistan. Yesterday she complained of his letter of condolence in which she says his name was spelt wrongly. The paper confirms the Prime Minister phoned her yesterday and denied the misspelling. In a full transcript of the phone call, Jackie Janes told him that she knew every injury her child sustained and that he could have survived but he bled to death. She also believes he never fully apologised. More cheerfully, there are several stories about the winners of the £90 million Euro lottery prize. We report whoops of delight as call centre staff join Millionaire Club. It seems seven members of the BT call centre on Merseyside share half that sum. The Mail talks about the other winners, a couple from Gwent in South Wales. It's Golden Gwent now, as there have now been seven lottery winners from the area. The headline reads, Jackpot Valley strikes again. That news and more throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. Is there much less oil in the world's reserves than the West's official monitoring body is saying? 
Western governments, including Britain, use the International Energy Agency's assessments of oil supply when drawing up their energy and climate policies. In a moment, we'll hear claims from inside the agency that a looming shortage of oil is being deliberately underplayed. But first, let's hear Britain's Energy Secretary, Ed Miliband, announced to MPs yesterday plans to fast-track a new generation of nuclear power stations by changing the planning laws. In every area, onshore and offshore wind and other renewables, nuclear and clean fossil fuels, there will be people who wish to oppose specific planning applications. Their voice must be heard in the process, and we believe it will. The planning process must ensure we can set the right projects in the right sites. But, Mr Speaker, while of course we need a process that can turn down specific applications, saying no everywhere would not be in the national interest. As a country, we need nuclear, renewables and clean coal for our energy future. They are necessary for security of supply, tackling climate change and the future of our economy. That is why we are reforming the planning system and publishing our statements today. I urge all sides of the House to unite behind these proposals and I commend this statement to the House. Ed Miliband. Well, insiders at the Paris-based International Energy Agency say the IEA is worried that if the truth about the oil supply were revealed, there'd be panic buying. I asked The Guardian's Terry McAllister whether the allegations came as a surprise. Well, on one hand, they're a great surprise. On the other hand, they're not so surprising. And it's a great surprise because these are people inside the IEA who are telling us what many people, many critics have said in the past, that they thought that the figures on future oil production and reserves were not accurate and were completely uh, overestimating how much oil there was in the world. Why would the IEA give misleading information? Well, I think from talking to people inside the organisation, on one hand, There's just been a complacency about them. On the other hand, there is a suspicion that the IEA has been unduly influenced by the needs of American foreign policy in particular. The Americans are very influential inside the IEA. They don't hold the top position, but they always hold the deputy um, head of the IEA. And American foreign policy has been very much dictated under Bush, particularly, by a requirement that oil would keep on flowing and there was no need to move to a lower carbon economy because we were running out of oil and hence their um, unwillingness to sign the Kyoto Protocol and and take steps to uh, green their economy. If there is an oil shortage uh, not very far away, and if the agency's assessments of oil demand and supply can't be relied upon, what does that mean for the energy and climate policies of Western governments, including Britain? Countries like Britain do rely on IEA estimates. They don't do this kind of number crunching themselves. They use the IEA as their sort of benchmark for for where we are in terms of the oil cycle. So they're very important in that respect. If the figures are overestimating how much oil there is, then then it's um, clearly encouraged people to be slower in terms of the move to a low-carbon economy than they should really be doing. And clearly many environmentalists have argued for a long time that the speed of change is not nearly fast enough. But this is real tangible 
proof, as it were, that um, we need to drive the, the change much faster than we've hitherto been doing. And what's the IEA saying about these allegations? The IEA have been unwilling to comment up till now. They say they're launching the World Energy Outlook, which is their most important um, document on reserves and production and things like this today. And at that point, Fatty Birrell, who's the chief economist, has said that he will talk about these allegations. Terry McAllister, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash business. Also on The Guardian's website. Hi, I'm Jessica Shepherd. I'm an education reporter on educationguardian.co.uk. Today on the website, uh, the former chief executive of BP, Lord Brown, is going to be chairing a review on tuition fees. We're going to announce who else is on the panel. That could lead to uh, tuition fees doubling to £7,000. Also, we've got a poll of the nation's favourite school meals, which shows that a roast and a sponge pudding and custard are the favourites. And all of that on educationguardian.co.uk. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 is one of the most hotly anticipated games of the year. Retailers opened at midnight last night to allow fans to be among the first to get their hands on it. Among those lucky enough to get a preview was Charlie Brooker, who we're going to hear from later in the programme. He said on Twitter at the weekend that it's very good, but it's not the flipping messiah or anything, and it has the intellectual depth of Die Hard 4. Guardian Daily's Andy Duckworth went to meet some excited gamers. I'm on Goode Street in the middle of London and I'm outside a shop here called Game Focus. I'm about to go inside and meet someone who's been lucky enough to have already had the opportunity to play a game that's been hugely anticipated. It's called Modern Warfare 2. My name is uh, Fong. Now we managed to play it, I've played through a couple of levels at least and I'll tell you what, it does blow my mind away, um, especially the part when you play through the snow cabins and you have a gun that actually um, can show enemies on the LCD screen by a heart rate, wherever your heartbeat bounces, so that's how you can see from through the snow. Also as well, you get to play through a story part when you land in the airport, you get to play through a terrorist moment. So it gives you the experience of how it feels like being a terrorist. And that's proving quite controversial, isn't it? Yeah, of course. But the main thing they're really getting you to experience it is to see how you feel. Because inside the game itself, you do play through the main character. And he actually questions himself where he says he doesn't like this. He doesn't want to do this. So it's not going in there and thinking, yeah, I can blow up everyone. It's just the whole point of it. It's actually showing you what would you feel like if you was in that situation. It's, it's clearly aimed towards the male market, do you, do you think? Or do you get women in here asking for it? Actually, we're pretty much almost 50-50 now. Um, quite recently, a week before, uh, we've had so many calls from both women and men, kind of surprisingly, uh, asking for a Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2. So, yeah, I won't really say it's a sex thing. To be quite honest, it's very mixed. It's equally balanced. They're selling two versions of this, uh, and one with a, a particularly interesting gadget. Tell me about that. You get another version with the night vision goggles. Um, there's actually, I don't, I don't see a point into them at the moment, but there are some really big fans out there who would like to have uh, gadgets of the Call of Duty. The prices from between that is going to be 120 to 140. Yeah, I reckon it's going to sell very successfully. I think when it comes to the situation, I think money's not the issue when it comes to something that they really want. 
you know, you can't help it if you really love something that much. It's like buying a wedding ring, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you're in love with a woman, so you spend the amount of money for it. But, you know what I mean? It's the same for other people for games. All right, here we go. heard of Modern Warfare yeah. 2. Have you ordered it? Are you going to get it? Eventually, yeah. Why eventually? Well, because it costs too much. Only if people can afford it can spend £45 or whatever it is now. I think, I think it's more. It's 50 or 55 quid these. Yeah. It's in Asda for £32. So I'm sure there'll be thousands of people out there trying to get a coffee. If you don't mind me saying, you're not kind of a classic uh, console-playing uh, teenager. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually start playing computer games until I was over 30. I prefer the st strategic games like Age of Empires or Civilization and stuff like that, or the puzzle games. Too violent for you? No, it's not violence, it's just that I'm not interested. It's got the multiplayer aspects of it which people love, so there's loads of people playing it, and um, the actual campaign that you play through is just is pretty mind-blowing. Like, a lot of big set pieces, like state-of-the-art graphics, uh, very smooth gameplay. I'm probably one of the people that waits to hear from some others or maybe play at a friend's house and then see what happens. Andy Duckworth reporting, and you can read a review of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 at guardian.co.uk slash technology. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, celebrations in Berlin, 20 years after the fall of the wall. Anticipation. I would say it's kind of exciting. People are happy. It smells like sauerkraut in the air. But first... During the First World War, the voices of hundreds of British soldiers were recorded by a German linguist. The recordings were made in German prisoner of war camps between 1916 and 1918. They've been held in an archive in Berlin, but now the British Library has acquired digital copies. The Guardian's Maeve Kennedy has the details. We got special permission to go into the camps with very early recording equipment, which had been taken up the back of a lorry, and hundreds of shellac records. And he recorded hundreds and hundreds of these voices. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, give me that body of goods that belonged to me. So the father gave him his share. What they're actually saying isn't very interesting. They're mostly reading little snippets of the Bible that he gave them so that he had a standard text he could compare with. But what's extraordinary is that these are the real voices of very ordinary people who didn't get recorded at the time. Recording cost a fortune, so you get princes and politicians and opera singers recorded. You don't get an ordinary guy like George Campbell, one of my favourite recordings. He was 29 at the time. He was from Aberdeen in Scotland, and he's singing really sweetly the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond. And I think you have to think of him in 1916 in this prisoner of war camp, probably glad as anything to get out of the trenches. And with some chance, which many of his colleagues wouldn't have had, of getting back to the Bonnie Bonnie Banks of Loch Lomond, there's something just infinitely touching about these voices. And do we know what happened to any of the people recorded in this archive? We think... It should be possible to trace many of them because Dogen needed to know who they were, where they came from and what ages they were. So if you take a name like William Campbell or George Campbell, the singer, there would have been 
thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of them in the army at the time. But you know where they came from and where they're aged. So they should be traceable from birth records. They should be cross-matchable with um, army records, almost all of which are in the National Archives. Um, I think researchers and family historians will be poring over this archive for decades to come. Some work has already been done on them. In one case, they found the sister still alive of one of these men recorded in the camps almost a century ago. Maeve, many thanks. Now, staying in Berlin and its more recent history, world leaders including Angela Merkel, Gordon Brown, Nicolas Sarkozy and Dmitry Medvedev marked the 20th anniversary yesterday of the Berlin Wall coming down. There were memorials for the 136 people who died trying to cross the border, a thousand dominoes placed along the wall's route were tipped over and there were fireworks and music at the Brandenburg Gate. Visitors to the celebrations told The Guardian's Kate Connolly what the wall meant to them. On November 9th, 1989, I was at home and a colleague was calling and he said switch the the television on and see what's going on. And we were working for television, very young guys, and we were at Munich and we said we have to go to the the border, we have to go there. But there was no team, everyone was there and uh, there was no chance getting there. So we were trapped at home and we have to watch television and talking to each other all the time on the telephone and seeing what's going on, isn't that incredible? Why are you here in Berlin today? Well, mainly for the celebration. We were here 19 years ago. We've been back three or four times now, so we thought we'd be nice to actually be here. You know, it makes something, you know, it's something nice. Well, why not sit at home and watch it on the television? I oh, know the atmosphere. We were here two years ago and it was a fantastic atmosphere for uh, the um, Oktoberfest. So we just love Berlin. Yeah. And, and what do you remember from 19 years ago? And uh, just that would have been just after the well, war. I, I was just here thinking and all the. We came here 19 years ago, and it was all in the Brandenburg Gate. Nothing, it was just flat wasteland. I mean, we're stopping in Potsdamer Platz, and I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, you know, how things have just changed. It's unbelievable. And you were serving with the British military yeah, at the time right. as part of the forces. Yeah, we, uh, we came forces. to Spandau, yeah, yeah. yeah, we came to Spandau. Uh, so I finished my last two years here, and uh, it was fantastic. Was it really and, good? And do you remember where you were when the wall came down and, and how yes, you experienced it? Yes, I do, actually. It? I was in a, because it was around my birthday time, say, October. And I was in a actually a bar in uh, a place called Hamer, which is in well, part of uh, the military in Germany, in West Germany at the time. And uh, I remember it well. It was amazing. No, it was just amazing that uh, sort of you've just grown up with it all your life, and all of a sudden everything's free and everybody's coming across, you know, and the world's full of trabants. And, w- and what's the atmosphere here like uh, at the moment? Anticipation. I would say it's kind of exciting. People are happy. Smells like sauerkraut in the air. (laughs) Charlie Brooker's TV credits as writer and presenter include Newswipe, Nathan Barley and the BAFTA-nominated Dead Set. Well, now a new collection of Charlie's columns for The Guardian has been published and it's called For the Hell of It All. At a recent on-stage event with his fellow Guardian columnist Marina Hyde, the self-proclaimed miserablist explained just how little he enjoyed the process of contributing to The Guardian. Writing Dead Set was literally the most miserable experience 
periods of my life. I was, I remember on my birthday, I had, to, there was a point near the end where the last two episodes I had to write the first draft of each in a day. I had a day to write each. And I was literally, and, and I'm not exaggerating to say I was writing in tears in my pants, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that, on my birthday. It was, my, it was my birthday. <laughs> That's so sort of, you know, in a sense, that's what people might imagine you doing. I know. I know that sounds terrible, but it's in the nicest possible way, Charlie. That's that's what. I know. And I kept phoning up. I kept phoning up like the other, like the other one, one of the other people who, who I was having to send the script to, and saying, and just going, I can't do. I'm never doing this again. I wish I was dead. Um, and all it was just miserable. I, I sort of often really don't like the process of writing it. Really, it really annoys me that it sort of seems difficult. And, and I'm always surprised when people sort of say to me, oh, you seem to say what I think. Because when I'm doing things, I feel a real struggle to get things out. I'm like, it's like having a massive stammer or something, or just like a big, thick, 10-foot layer of perspex between me and whatever it is I'm actually trying to get at. And every so often you sort of manage to chip through it. That's the misery I go through when I'm writing things. <laughs> so if anyone else enjoys them, well, bully for them. Charlie Brooker talking to Marina Hyde. And there's more from that event at guardian.co.uk slash video. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.